0: Welcome to Prime Suspects, where we bring you an insider's look behind the counter of Prime Sports. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and this week, our final episode of 2023, going to be a different kind of episode, one-on-one with myself and Adam Bjorn. We'll be turning the tables a bit with Adam, going from the bookmaker side of the counter to a deep dive on some topics from the better's perspective. And as a heads up, this might get a bit technical at times. Our goal here is to go beneath the surface to uncover insight you'll have a hard time finding anywhere else. And whatever you think about this conversation, good, bad, or indifferent, we'd love to hear about it. Feel free to DM us on Twitter at Prime Sportsbook. And we'll use that feedback to inform future episodes to provide as much value as possible to you, the audience. All right, Adam, kicking things off, I'd love it if we could take just a minute off the top. To hear from you about your legendary experience on both sides of the counter in this forum so if you will just tell us a bit about your background in betting
1: yeah i mean straight off the bat it was been betting horses i've sort of dated it back to when i was about 10 to 12 years old betting horses one of the first ones i remember is the 1988 australian cup where i backed a horse at 125 to one with two heavy favorites in the race so that's sort of where i can take the lineage back to and then on the sports betting side it was the George Foreman Michael Mora fight which was right after I would turned 18 there was sports betting in my home state that had just started back George I think again it was big odds so I backed him for the KO and back then again I had to wait all day for a result being in Australia different time zones and I had teletext which again I generally did all my racing from and would just wait for that uh, information to come over that it was you know what the result was and then from then on pretty much straight out of high school I moved to Darwin which you know for Americans Australia is just the map upside down and it was like I moved from sort of Boston to San Diego in that narrative to give them an idea and up there was where sports betting had been legal for a number of years uh and Got a job as a junior ticket writer, and that was sort of the beginning of it all you know, for both sides of the counter. Began betting horses, things like that as a teenager, then sort of learned the other side of the business, which really improved my betting that I learned more and more over the years, the discipline aspect and whatnot. After kind of wearing out my welcome in Australia, I'd worked at many places. I'd obviously become uh, very good betting. And had a lot of advantages understanding the arbitraging, having access to global odds. This is early days internet, or even pre-internet in Australia, and just sort of took advantage of that information. And again, getting really stale numbers. You know, you talk about getting a number that's a couple of minutes old, or five. You know, beating a number by five minutes or something today is extraordinary. I was getting things that. One game in particular I remember, I think I was getting like plus 450 and plus 8 points on close to a pick'em game. So it was, again, knowing where to look, getting the information, almost betting overnight lines in the middle of the day on that side of the world. And then sort of started out, I worked for a company called CanBet uh, that was doing U.S. sports in Australia And then in 2000, I ended up uh, emailing 150 sports books, and within, I think it was 48 hours, uh, been called and was offered a job uh, to move to Jamaica to do that. So, ultimately moved over there, then started doing Australian and European sports. So, you know, I literally did 15 years of night shifts, working on the opposite side of the world to the sports that I sort of specialized in at the time, and again, you know, I took a few times out where I would just not work and go and bet. You know, I had success, but ultimately the information you get working it for a book when you're betting, the discipline of sitting there 16, 18, 20 hours a day, you know, using that information uh, and having access globally. Uh, even today, I don't think people realize the advantage of having partners per se or teams of spread across the globe and taking advantage of that information in the overnight aspect of the business there was probably a period of 10 years where most of my bets were probably placed between like 11 p.m and 7 a.m of wherever that sports book was located and funny enough you know I've started working or consulting for different sports books over a period of time and then I'd get to learn who their night shift people were and could see why that was such a big advantage and then even after I leave places you know, I know their weaknesses and then I sort of took advantage of them as well. But one of the things I definitely have learned through, you know, again, it's almost 30 plus years of placing bets, almost 30 years of taking bets, is that I grew up and evolved in a golden period of being a better that, yes, I had access to different models and different things like that, but just an information or intuitive better. Nothing exists like that now. You know, you you can find some gaps in the market, maybe if you're living in Latin America or Europe or Africa, things like that. But I really did have it easy as a sports better and taking advantage of all the different aspects that you can of the business and also taking advantage of living on both sides of the counter or straddling the fence for pretty much most of those 30 years And taking advantage of that way, like people today with models or information do so. When it comes to information is another thing, the Don Best boards and Twitter and all those things pre them existing was just you could get information that nobody else had or nobody was doing the work was probably more to the point when you look back at it as well.
0: It sounds like when you mentioned about three decades of experience betting, almost three decades on the other side of the counter, there is clearly so much to unpack there. And with this conversation, focusing on things from the betters perspective, with your, again, legendary experience on both sides of the counter, are there any top takeaways that you would say you've learned from putting in your time on both sides of the counter? that have really helped to either sharpen yourself as a better or things that you would share from your experience as advice to other betters who may be up and coming in the space without that experience on the other side of the counter.
1: From the betting point of view, you realize that how good some of the people out there and how much work that they put in. And again, getting that information while you're sitting behind the counter and then being able to either bet it out or use that information for many other variations, was definitely why I would take jobs, consulting jobs, for literally nothing or very low. You know, sometimes I was doing it for rent. Sometimes I was doing it for a little bit of cash. You know, at one point, I think I was working for seven places uh, in Australia. Uh, I was working on a Saturday that would covered my rent. And I was working, you know, all these different things. So I think the value of the information being on the bookmaker side to turn that into betting was everything. And then on the flip side, it's sort of now it's finding ways to place bets without getting limited, which is, you know, while I was just seeing this in the US now with its, while they say it's an infancy industry, it's been around for 30, 40 years in various ways. It's just the ability of example, I heard uh, something a week or so ago, a guy was playing, he was betting parlays, he was losing and the parlays were taken away. And it was sort of said, well, we should be thanking him. There's parlays. He's no good at parlays. But it was a few bets, and that was the gauge of knowing that over time, if you break down those parlays, the single bets would have accumulated wins. And it's trying to gauge how to place the bets without getting limited. So it was always when I was getting good NBA stuff 15 years ago, I was betting $25, 10-team round robins of four five six seven eight nine ten to get the volume in now you can go long periods of not winning and then suddenly you win six figures because you went you know nine out of ten or ten out of ten so there's sort of the challenges of trying to look square trying to gamble in a certain way and it's sort of the same with the, the correlated stuff people put in the parlays A lot of books have no idea they just say oh it's a parlay better yes bring him on yet they're getting the advantages of these correlations and the margins that some of these syndicates and groups and pros bet at are so small like they're looking for one one and a half percent margins that i would have never done in my time i was looking for five six ten fifteen percent edges that i thought i had so that's definitely another thing now is it's you've really got to bet the volume to really make it and playing into small margins one of the things that i've sort of noticed again you know as you look back on these things i was probably a 30% better 30% strike rate lifetime because most of my big wins come on futures or horse races i think i had the giants to win a couple of world series different times where i'd gotten them at 40s or 50s during the all-star break different things like that so when people are saying well you got to hit 54 percent to make money Again, it's based on what are you betting, what's the volume you're doing, and sort of, it's a numbers game. And ultimately, you've just got to make sure that you're not necessarily winning more than you lose, which is okay. Again, if your average bet is plus 150, plus 200 kind of thing, but everyone gets so wrapped up in so many things that I just, it doesn't matter at the end of the day.
0: A couple of things I'd like to follow up on from that answer, one would be Profiling betters. We'll get to that in a moment. But what you just touched on about getting the right number, and there are ways where you can hit 30% of the time, but based on the odds you're getting, that can still be very profitable at the end of the day. For a lot of betters who are looking at standard markets, minus 110 seems to be the going right Think about most sports books with NFL full game sides or totals. And I know as a shameless plug for Prime Sports here, there is an offering of minus 108 on the VIG right now. And to contextualize that, if you're laying minus 110 and you're hitting at a 52% rate, you're losing and, and you're coming close to breaking even, but over time you will lose. And if you're hitting at 52% when you're laying minus 108, you're profitable. So it might sound like a negligible difference, but over time, those small differences can really get magnified. So Adam, I'd love it if you could explain why Prime is offering minus 108 in some markets right now and what bettors should be doing to take advantage of opportunities like that, whether it's at Prime or other books offering reduced VIG. Yeah, and again, that's one of my selling points that I believe in is
1: you should have more than one out. At 12, 18 months ago, I heard that the, you know, the average American had 4.3 apps or something like that on their phone. You know, And that kind of part of the education of the players is... Why bet at one place? Even if you're a same game parlay or a 10 team parlay, why not enter both bets in two or three different apps and see what the payout is and take the best payout? I mean, again, you know, the consumerism of people and the deal hunting of people, it's no different than looking up flights and airfares or booking hotels and, you know, going to different apps to try and find a better price. Sports betting is no different. Whether you go down the road and you've got Walmart or Walgreens or something and you know if someone's got something half a price of the other go and buy it there it's no different and I think that's the first step of the education is shop around look for the best price but also know potentially what you're betting into if it'll move if you want looking to get more down than what this one place might serve you and again it's a it's a value game if you can play the value game and beat that to somewhat you know, you're kind of halfway there to being able to do successfully sports betting, which again, I'm learning is not necessarily the goal for most people. They just want to play, which is fine. But if you're ultimately trying to win or make money or pay the bills, finding the value in shopping numbers is probably your first step.
0: And I feel like this conversation, it's safe to assume, will be geared toward that segment of the audience that is looking to win. And for people who do start to master the value game, at a certain point, keeping access to accounts can become a challenge. I think of Spanky often mentioning that at a certain point, the winning becomes trivial. And that's a great spot to get. If you're a new better and you get to the spot where winning is starting to become trivial, that's an achievement in and of itself. But that's not necessarily the end of the road. So, Adam, to your point earlier about the way that books profile betters and your knowledge of that from experience on the other side of the counter, what can you share with betters who are looking to maximize account value, maximize account longevity? about how that profiling process works so that they can act accordingly with their betting activity.
1: One of the things that I hear a lot about is the CLV, the closing line value. Almost avoiding that is a good goal. Initially, people, operators, seeing it kind of using that as a gauge and get way too wrapped up in that, in my opinion. The closing line value of certain niche sports or not necessarily the NFLs, et cetera, but you can bet, a book and move it and then no other bets are placed, or that's the closing number. To me, that's not necessarily an advantage of closing line value because, again, it's one bet, one move, and the market's kind of there. So that's sort of the first thing is it's broader now where you can get access to a lot of different markets. You can find your little niches and things like this. It's a matter of trying to play into spots. If you're betting NFL and that's your main thing. Then again, I don't expect that you're going to get limited or shut down. But I've heard it happen. Yet you can get a lot of money down on these high-level sports per se. So again, if you can beat those and you can get a lot of volume down, then play those things. When I'm looking at bets, generally I can gauge. I think within half a dozen bets, what to expect. Again, we're looking at whether the line moves around that time. Yes, what the close, what the edge was on the closing number not necessarily looking at the win or loss because ultimately, you know, these people will beat you long term if they're getting certain aspects. But every place is looking at it different and a lot of it, I think, is intuition. Uh, I think if you do it enough times, you see the bet, you make it a flow. But I've been in rooms with, you know, five different traders that all have very storied careers, have long experience of profiling, and they can have completely opposite opinions you know can be split three two or four one or things like this of whether a player is uh, smart or whether they'll lose long term and things like that so it's not just a black and white thing it's a lot of gray to it but ultimately i want to find players that i almost noble beat me guaranteed to move the line and invite them in to be able to use that information so that i can go to work sooner rather than later the quicker you get the information of a player coming in, betting the right number, and the market's heading in the one direction, then I can raise my limits and I can open it up to everyone until I see someone else that comes in that's heavily respected or is heading the other direction or even continuing in the same direction to be able to quickly get to the point where I'm comfortable of just closing my eyes, just opening up the limits and letting people bet. So again, there's a lot of moving parts to it. There's no exact answer. But if you're going to start playing on that, again, play different limits. If you know what the limit is, play below it. There's a lot of groups that will play $200 to $300 on things that they know the limits are two or 3000 But they'll just constantly bet and come through and come through and just accumulate that. And then obviously, betting live is a bigger advantage than betting pregame. Because there's no closing line value, there's no real gauge of the quality of the bets generally. You really have to have good traders sort of eyeing these things, seeing where the market's going, reading the game to have an opinion on where that fits. Most of these operations don't have these trading teams. They use a bet radar or a bet genius or scraping or different things like that. So that's also your opportunity to take an advantage and go into it. And then also the other aspect is take opportunities of where you have an opinion and the market's moving against you to come back the other way. And then again, you know, chances are you'll have negative closing line value, but if you have the information or you see things differently, take those opportunities to give yourself that negative CLV to then, again, confuse the profilers. The more you can confuse them that they're not quite sure. Generally, they'll leave you on the side of just let him bet, let's see some more before we make a decision.
0: One thing that stands out to me from what you just shared there was your preference to get information from sharp bettors as early as possible so that you can then use that to inform your process between the time those bets come in and a game begins. And I think that rings true to not only what Prime has to say, but from what I've heard of, of Met Caff and now others at the Circa team, also books like Chris and Pinnacle. But for the models that deviate from these types of books that are known to welcome sharp action, Adam, how would you describe your point of view on account longevity and the best ways for bettors who have access to, let's say, more recreational books to maximize the value of those accounts as well?
1: Uh, again, it's sort of playing the same shell games, coming in with parlays, if you take a loss what you're trying to do is build up a reputation as the kind of player that the expectations are you'll lose over the long term play some sports that's futures you know take some shots on some big futures that aren't necessarily top odds in the market if you plan on betting more widespread than just one or two books first take the number that's not the top number on the screen if ultimately you're going to move down to that number as well uh, and then, chip away on the on the way up rather than the way down, generally just trying to not look like you know what you're doing and playing a broad spread of sports if you come in just attacking player props on n f l then you know that becomes pretty evident. Play some golf stuff, generally, people think playing golf pick winners and that are just squares that are having shots at things. Just variate it, build the account, take a hit if you're a thousand dollar better or a $500 better, then blow a couple of thousand just to, again, betting random stuff, maybe a win, but you don't have CLVs and things like that. There's just ways to try and come in, play very weak, and then build it up from there and catch them on the tail end. Unless you really see something and you think you can get them for what you need to get them in the first go, then you know go right ahead. But
0: generally, it's just trying to build up the value of the count in that way. It sounds like along the way throughout this process, there can be much more art than science involved. And I think that can seem risky to certain bettors, but that is ultimately how a lot of people maximize account longevity and the lifetime value of some really useful accounts. On the flip side, Adam, a lot of bettors that I've come to know and respect as sharp bettors in the space today got their start without taking as much risk up front. And I think that brings in the topic of arbitrage. I think that you yourself, if I'm not mistaken, have some pretty ample experience in this regard. And I've got a couple quick questions on the topic for you. But first off, I'd love it if you could just explain the concept of how arbitrage works in betting and some of the best ways to identify valuable arbitrage opportunities. Yeah, well, the easiest one is just money lines. Generally, the
1: two-way money lines, finding ones that overlap that are under 100%. I know there's various tools out there that have some of these I think odds jam, unabated, different ones like this that have their tools that highlight when there's arbitrage available. This is where I think having access to global markets is definitely an advantage, especially on big events, even like a World Cup and things like that. You can have books in Latin American side of the world that are leaning one way and they're playing a European team and they'll be leaning another way and it gives an opportunity for arbitrages. And even big arbitrages where, again, these are high-limit games and that can happen across. Again, this is where I realize more and more the advantage I had. Again, I'm talking late 90s when Mary Pierce Martina Hingis played Australian Open final. I'm getting plus 350 one side in the US and minus 150 in Australia. My first trip to Vegas, I went to MGM. uh, saw Zab Judah and Costa Zoo fight. Having just lived just down the road from where Costa trained, Again, I was getting like plus 300, plus 350 him at the MGM and in Vegas and minus 160s, 170s That Judah in Australia. And then even uh, I think it was Hewitt-Sampras final in the U.S. Open. I think it was the year of nine eleven. Same thing again. Big odds for Hewitt in the U.S. side of the world and then the opposite for Sampras over the other side. And then even things like NFL divisions. You know, there was often times... One in particular, I remember it was the Pittsburgh Baltimore division. That if you bet around the world, you got it down to about 70, 75%. So it's not always the two way things. There's always soccer markets where there's a three way, or even, you know, again, divisions where there's four or five teams. If you play it around, again, these things are a lot harder to find today, but there's still opportunities. And then on the other side of the aspect where there's a little bit of risk is sort of the middling aspect of it. Now, you know, I see people sort of mention middlings and these different things they play when the margins are so, so tight. Again, I'm always using examples from 20 plus years ago because that's when it was just so easy and it's not necessarily that way now. But I guess it was like 97, 98 Super Bowl, Titans, Rams, where in Australia and that they weren't allowed to use flat numbers. So generally you'd get six and a half, seven and a half, other games, two and a half, three and a half. But that was a game where I got six and a half minus six and a half in New Zealand, and plus seven and a half in Australia. And luckily enough, that Super Bowl fell right in the middle. And and at that point in time, it was the biggest win I'd ever had, three four years into to what I was doing. But generally, it's reading a market as well. Now you know, there's I see some TikTok shit and things like that where they oh, if you're middle and or you're arbing and. You bet plus 200 and then the line moves and you get minus 180. That's good and well, but that's not real world scenarios. Ideally, it's you get them at the same time. A lot of people are using bots and things like that to really take advantage of it, um, but you can do it manually. Exchanges, are, I think, are a good opportunity in this spot. You know, we always did it with Betfair and things like that. I haven't had that much experience with profit and sport trade, but that's ultimately what I plan to use, is where I think the market's off, is give these arbitrage opportunities through Prime, where as bookmakers or even as bettors times, you can't go and bet with DraftKings, FanDuel, ESPN bet or anything else, but maybe they see something that I want to bet. So I'd rather, I not rather, but the potential is to find these arbitrages, give them a two, three cent earn, and in theory, it, all it is is you're betting at those other places, taking two or three cents worse of it. So again, that's sort of the, the education process and how I have looked at it for a long time of building liquidity through whatever way possible. And again, because of the restrictions of betting, finding people that you know can make and earn without any risk, propping up or building the position that we want on whatever event it
0: is. All right. Well, I said I had a, a couple questions on this topic, but I think you covered that and then some in the insightful answer you gave there. Adam, I know we're up against the clock. So one more rapid fire two-parter for you on our way out the door. Looking back on 2023, what's the biggest takeaway that you have from the year in betting? And looking ahead to 2024, what are you most looking forward to in the new year?
1: Well, I mean, looking back at it, it's not so much for the bettors, but the industry You know, with the Unibet closing and and these things, more and more I'm seeing that the entire industry's struggling, especially in the US with the cost of entries and things like that. So we're going to see some consolidation, I think. Trying to bring in the model that Prime Sport's doing is going to be very, very difficult. The challenges of being able to get liquidity and recreational players, which, you know, everyone says the sharp versus the recreational model. It's more of the all inviting, all welcoming versus the way that the others do it. So sort of learning the lay of the land in that aspect. And then also just sort of the amount of growth that is in the regulated space, but also in the gray market space. Having just been to Africa recently, sort of seeing them trying to license it and grow it and things like that. So on the things I've probably learned most is on the business aspect, the regulatory aspect, the difficulties of it and also enforcement versus growth aspect to it. And then just sort of, for the average better the amount of friction that's getting added to the process. They're really trying to make it harder than easier. Those kind of things that I've learned on this year, mainly taking myself out of the betting aspect as much as I have in the past. As it goes towards next year, I'm just really excited about, again, building up prime, getting New Jersey open, Kentucky, interacting more with the consumers of learning you know what they're looking for what they need it's a really big year in a sense of we've got euros so again i think that's a big niche that's not really been attacked in the u.s but it's starting to we'll see more traction as they look towards the uh, world cup you know two and a half years time sort of seen lots of comments and that about how soccer is not a big volume aspect of it a lot of places just offer a top few leagues, no depth to it. So I think, again, it's more of just learning what the landscape is, trying to get feedback of what the consumers are looking for, trying to educate people a little bit better while I see that as more of a challenge than what I thought of it even three or four months ago. But generally, it's just looking towards growth and, and building it out and doing things a little differently
0: and seeing if that resonates or you know whether we fall flat on our face. All right. Well, I think your point about actively seeking out feedback from the other side of the counter is going to be music to a lot of betters ears, especially as prime sports comes to other states, hopefully not too deep into the new year. So that seems like an appropriate note to leave it off on for now. Adam, this has been a fascinating conversation. I feel so honored to have had a front row seat to it, and I hope that we can do it again before too long. But in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode with some weekly reminders for the audience. You can register for Prime Sports at primesports.com. Download the Prime Sports app. Follow Prime Sports on Twitter. Again, that handle is Prime Sportsbook. And you can message us there with any questions or segment ideas. I know Joe's not here this week, but he's still worth your follow at Joe Brennan Jr. if you're not doing so already. And of course, you can follow Adam there at Adam Bjorn 2 You can find links to all of the above in the show notes. Last but not least, want to thank everybody for listening. Have a safe and happy new year, and we'll catch you next week right back here on Prime Suspects. You must be 21 or over to play on Prime Sports. Always bet responsibly and within your limits. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER.